We have a pause in the Larry Householder trial for a surprising reason. It's something we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. Some news to talk about. Let's get to it. Sherrod Brown pushed back on the narrative that Ohio's move into red state territory endangers his 2024 election bid in the U.S. Senate. Laura, what did he say to reporters? Well, he's already campaigning, I guess. He's While politicos are calling this race a toss-up, Brown says he'll win. And he blames gerrymandering and voter suppression like the new voter ID law for pushing Ohio redder. He talked about the decline of unions. That he says that's contributed to lower wages and declining economic growth in Ohio. And he says the state's Republican-controlled legislature cares more about guns and abortion and stopping people who love each other from marrying each other than they do investing in this economy, which he's not running against any of those folks in the Ohio State House, but uh, had some strong words for them. And he's relying on his record when he runs against Matt Dolan and whatever other Republicans line up to challenge him. He is saying, I don't think people necessarily see liberal, conservative, or middle of the road. When they make judgments, they think about whose side you're on. And he says he's on the side of the people, and he wants to point to all of the things he's done to help them. It's interesting. I've heard from about a half dozen people about Matt Dolan, the Republican who's running, saying, you know, I voted for Matt Dolan in the primary last time because I was voting against all the wackos that Mm -hmm. were in that primary. But there's no way I'm voting for Matt Dolan over Sherrod Brown. And And I think that's what is at stake here. People know Sherrod Brown. He's authentic. He's always stood for the same stuff. There's no waffling. There's, I mean, he just is, you know, who Sherrod Brown is. And I think mm-hmm. Ohioans trust him. I think Matt Dolan is being a little foolish and thinking because he came in third last time that he has this chance. I, I just, I think it'll be a fight. It'll be expensive. We'll be talking about it ad nauseum, but ultimately I think Sherrod Brown is going to be very difficult for a Republican to beat. I agree with that. However, we looked at the Tim Ryan race, right? And we thought that was going to be a lot closer than it was. He ran a practically perfect race. Now, he doesn't have the same history and the same name recognition that Sherrod Brown does. I mean, people like Sherrod as a person. He is was first elected as an Ohio state legislator in 1974, and he's basically been in the public eye ever since. He's the only statewide elected Democrat. And he won slightly more in 2018, last time he had to run, more than 53% of the vote. That's when he ran against Jim Renacci in that race. Look, I wouldn't be surprised if Renacci doesn't get back in. All of a sudden, Renacci is very active in our email boxes again. (laughs) His latest one was, we have to stop the woke teaching in our schools. I need your help. I need you to run for the school board. I mean, he's trying to go back. I feel like that's like two years ago. Did he do that already? He's going to do it again. And why is he doing it? Well, you know, he's also, there's a a Lincoln Day dinner coming up that he's pushing really hard and with uh, Carson coming in. And so I, I, if he runs, you know, Matt Dolan came in third against the Wacko faction. He probably would not beat Jim Renacci. And then if it's Jim Renacci, Sherrod Brown, I, I, I just don't see that going well for Jim Renacci. Anyway, it's Sherrod is, is in the fighting, you know, back in the trenches doing the fight. He's got two years of campaigning yeah. ahead. We've had how many stories already on the Senate race this <laughs> two years in the future, just in the last couple of weeks. So this is going to, we're going to be really sick of it by the time it rolls around. You know, what will be nice is after 24, 
there's going to be four years before the <laughs> next one. And I hope we don't have a four-year race after that. It's Today in Ohio. How do public records cross up claims by Larry Householder's lawyers that are central to their argument in trial that he is not the corrupt man prosecutors portray? Layla, this is a terrific story by Andrew Tobias, a really smart catch (laughs) and using the public records to lay it out. One way or the other, Larry Householder did something wrong. That's right. So in in their opening statements, Householder's attorneys told the jury that the, the evidence will show that prosecutors are dead wrong in accusing Householder of improperly using $400,000 from his dark money nonprofit generation now to fix up his Florida vacation house. Instead, Bradley said that money was a loan from Jeff Longstreth, one of his top political aides. And Bradley said jurors will see that Householder was really transparent about that. But Andrew Tobias reports that actually Householder would have been required to report that loan on financial disclosure forms that lawmakers have to fill out every year. You have to report debts of $1,000 or greater, and Householder didn't. He reported no debts at all for 2019 or 2020. Prosecutors also have said Householder spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to settle lawsuits from 2017 and 2018 involving a failed business deal and $20,000 to cover credit card-related expenses in 2020. He he did disclose receiving an unspecified gift from Longstreth for both 2019 and 20. He, he wasn't required to detail those gifts unless they came from a lobbyist. But Stephen Bradley, his attorney, says Householder and Longstreth went to a law firm together to document the loan, and Householder spent the money to settle business debts related to a failed investment in a coal mining business in Alabama so that he could sell the house in Florida. And, you know, Householder planned to use the proceeds um, from the house sale to repay that loan. So what do you think about that? Well, it's a misdemeanor to not fill out the form. So maybe he's figuring, well, a misdemeanor is better than federal bribery charges. His problem is, though, Longstreth is on the witness list against him. So Longstreth will clear this record. So if the feds are putting Longstreth on the stand, they must feel pretty sure about what he's going to say. Right. Right. Isn't Larry Householder also facing something from the ethics commission about using his campaign funds to pay for attorneys am i remembering that right like it's another really small charge yeah i mean you can use your campaign fund to pay for attorneys until you're charged with something and then after that you can't um so i i don't know we'll have to see but but really smart reporting by andrew on this that the light went off in his head hey wait a minute he would have to disclose that. Let me go see. And I think we're going to see a lot of that kind of enterprise come out of coverage of this trial. Love it. That's great. It's today in Ohio. How is an Akron marijuana dispensary about to make it even easier for people with medical marijuana cards to get their product? Lisa, this is another kind of shift in the ease of getting marijuana. Yeah, very fascinating. It's Citizen by Clutch is a new marijuana dispensary that opened yesterday in Lorraine County along the Lorraine-Sheffield border. It's the first 
dispensary to have a drive through in Ohio. And the drive through is only partly operational, will be fully open next week. This is owned by Akron-based Clutch Cannabis, which was established in 2020 by Adam Tamarius. He said that he wanted to simplify the patient experience. He said, you know, there are often these huge menus at pot dispensaries. The lines are long. People have to wait. So he wanted to have a streamlined menu and faster service. So they moved into an old veterinary clinic and they converted a side entrance for the drive-through. And he says this would be great for patients with mobility issues or people who have their kids in the car and don't want to come into the store and want to avoid long lines. But it's not something you can drive up and say, hey, give me two buds and a joint. You have to uh, order online and then you go pick up your order at the window. And he's hoping to open a second store in Canton in the coming months, presumably with a, with a drive-through as well. And this one joins 15 other current dispensaries in the greater Cleveland area from Elyria to Lakewood to Cleveland Heights and as far east as Painesville. Well, as I understand it, the, the, when people get their medical marijuana card, the first time they're, they're going to get the product, there's an education they have to go through because there's different strains mm-hmm. and there's different ways things affect people. So I imagine that's what causes the lines. If you're a regular user, you know exactly what mm-hmm. you want. You go in with your card. You just want to pick up and go. But if you're a first timer, you need that educational period to figure out what product, because I guess there's a bunch to, to pick from. This would allow you, if you're a regular user, go online. You have to do it Correct. online. Pick what you want. It'll be waiting for you, Correct. Right? Yeah, you can't just drive up and, and order there. But I, I I think it's a great idea because, you know, I have a friend with a mar- medical marijuana card who has mobility issues, and I think this would be great for her to just be able to not even get out of her car. Yeah, I, it, I'm, I'm kind of surprised they've had, they're still having long lines because I thought they had increased the dispensaries, but evidently they are. So interesting, interesting. If we ever legalize marijuana completely, I wonder if it'll work more like the McDonald's drive-thru. <laughs> you drive up, place your order, and go. I don't know. Do they have that in Michigan where it is legal? I, I will have to pay attention next time I'm up there. Don't you think you would have seen a sign for that if you drive in Michigan? Because every billboard is for a different marijuana company. And I don't feel like I've seen a drive through sign. Yeah, I don't recall it, but there's so many signs that it's hard to remember them all. Uh, but it's an interesting way of getting it. Uh, liquor stores have been drive through for years, so why not? You know, I, I wanted to mention, because you when I first read this, I was thinking of the way li- drive through liquor stores are set up, where you kind of pull into the bay and there's, you know, they run and get you what you, but this has to be set up similar to like a bank. Because the the security is so intense around these marijuana clinics mm-hmm. uh, or the uh, the dispensaries, I mean, they have armed guards outside. They've got bulletproof glass. They, you know, when you're going to, you know, visit it in person, they buzz you into a little chamber before they, you know, bring you into the actual dispensary. So this must be the way they set this up must be very thoughtful because mm-hmm. you you're eliminating some of the some of the uh, layers of security. I think. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a cash business, right? It has it's to all be, cash, exactly. Yeah, so it's a lot of cash. It's today in Ohio. Is this a not in my backyard case, or is it a case of Akron City Council violating the city charter? Laura, what is the battle of White Pond Drive about? So we're talking about 68 acres off of White Pond Drive in Akron, sold to a developer who wants to build a $55 million housing and retail project, and 
The area does not want it. Lead for pollinators. They filed a lawsuit in Summit County Common Pleas Court this week. To be fair, I don't know if it's lead or LEAD. It's L-E-A-D, and it's an acronym. They say Akron City Council violated the previous ordinance because when it voted to sell this to Triton Property Ventures in December, they say city ordinances require two-thirds of council to approve the sale, and it passed only 7-6 December 12th. But the city says that majority is only needed if it's adopted as an emergency or without three separate readings. And this was the third reading, which from my knowledge of government meetings, that's generally how it goes. You need an overriding majority if you want to do it quickly in an emergency, otherwise three readings. So the public has lots of say, but the idea is a hundred ranch style living units, a hundred townhomes and up to 30,000 square feet of retail or commercial space. I want to make this clear. I grew up in Akron. I wasn't around White Pond Drive a lot, but this is not like a pristine area next to a national park. This is a exit right off 77. It's an interchange there. There's a dentist. My dentist office used to be there. There's a bunch of apartments. So it's not like a park anyway. They just want to see this preserved because it probably is one of the last big parcels of undeveloped land. Is is there an argument that because it's a land sale that it must need a bigger majority? Because it would seem like this is very cut and dried. If they had three readings and the rules are you just need a, a, a simple majority, then that they wouldn't have grounds here. I don't know Akron City Charter. Warner Mendenhall is the one who is fighting this, and he is a very well-known Akron lawyer. Remember when we talked about the Highland Square Bar on COVID a couple weeks ago? He's the lawyer in that case. I believe he ran for mayor at one point. So he knows what he's doing, and I don't know what the merits of this case are. It'll be interesting to see it play out. The, the city says it's always planned to develop it. It bought the property in 2006 for $7 million and then sold the property to Triton for $725,000. Mm-hmm. So uh, they definitely didn't make money on this. What do the people that oppose it want to happen to the land? They want it preserved. They, they want to be undeveloped. They want a park. So they all live around there and they don't want more development? That's my reading. So it's not in my backyard. <laughs> I would say this is a pretty NIMBY case. Okay. <laughs> All right. It's today in Ohio. We don't talk about Ukraine much on this podcast because it's focused on Ohio and Northeast Ohio. But a deputy United States secretary in state was in town this week to give a city club speech explaining why the war in Ukraine should be top of mind for Ohioans. Layla, what was her argument? Yeah, Dep- deputy secretary of state Wendy Sherman spoke about the role of the United States in the ongoing war in Ukraine and, and why matters of foreign policy that seem really far removed from us should have relevance to our lives. And and in the case of Ukraine, it should matter to us, she said, because that war is a war on democracy. Not only do many Americans have family in the Ukraine and, and cultural ties to, to Ukraine, but, but Russian President Vladimir Putin presents a threat to democracy around the world, she said. To, to back down from the United States' commitment to support the Ukrainian people would ultimately send a message of weakness to other leaders who may have similar ideologies. She gave her impressions of the situation facing the citizens of Ukraine and and the many ways that Russian aggression against Ukrainians has affected the lives of people in Cleveland, around the country and the world. And the, the current Russian strategy, she said, is disrupting power supplies around the country that are essential for heat and water supplies. She said what Putin couldn't win on the battlefield, he's trying to win by freezing people in their homes. 
And she pointed to what Ohio is doing and can do to support the Ukrainian people or stand against Russia. More than 3,000 Ukrainians have been given refuge here in Northeast Ohio. And and the fact that Ohio will soon be home to one of the largest, the world's largest, uh, one of the world's largest manufacturing plants for solar panels contributes to the global effort to rely less on Russian oil. It's one of the benefits of having the City Club of Cleveland, because if you don't have that, if you don't have this storied institution that that is known for powerful speeches, we wouldn't be talking about this. I mean, this injects into the Cleveland conversation topics that should be top of mind. So credit to the City Club. It sounds like she she gave speeches in a couple different locations um, in in Ohio. And but, you know, of course, the City Club makes it very accessible for people. You can listen, you can watch. And uh, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, and I think you can check almost all of their speeches. You can check out on their website. They are recorded. It's today in Ohio. All right, you wouldn't know it to look outside today, but this has been an unusually warm winter. Lisa, what might that mean for Ohio's maple syrup industry? Well, this is actually the fifth warmest January since 1938. The average high temperature so far this month is 43 and a half degrees. That's seven degrees higher than the normal, which is 35.8 degrees. The most recent warm winter was 2020, where the average or January was uh 40 degrees in 2020. And the average overnight low temperature is higher. So for this month, it was 32.7 degrees. That's 10 degrees higher than normal. Normally this year, it's 22 degrees for the low. And this is the highest since records began being taken at Hopkins Airport in 1938. Also behind on snow, we've only had 8.1 inches of snow this month. Usually we get, yeah, we usually get about 14. <laughs> so what does this mean for the maple syrup industry? Well, sap collection, they usually start to tap the trees in mid-February, and it usually lasts about three to four weeks. Um, some producers have considered tapping trees early because of the warm weather, but we talked to Ohio State Extension Education Coordinator Les Ober, and he says none of the big producers have tapped so far. There's one small one that has opened their sugaring house. But they're looking at several different forecasts, and they're all different. He says that most of them, though, indicate there's going to be a cold period in early February. Uh, Lake Metro Parks Farm Park plans to tap their maples in about two weeks, and that's about one week early for them. And I didn't know what really makes sap run, but it's warm days and cold nights that make the sap run. And if there's a cold snap during that time, the sap production stops. It has been an unusual winter because we've had multiple warm spells. I've had, I think, three, mm-hmm. and each time I have some bulbs. First, they, they came up. Then in the second spell, they rose about an inch, but they're like four inches tall now. So I, it's just been an unusual winter. I do have to say, when you said sap collection, for some reason, immediately in my mind, I, I thought of a city council election. <laughs> I, I don't, just just what, what struck me immediately. And of course, you know, <laughs> uh, coming in March, there's all kinds of maple things that happen in, in Northeast Ohio in March. And I am, I'm one when I, I buy my syrup at Richard's Maple Products in Chardon. I make the drive whenever I'm out of syrup to go up there. And Chardon is like the kind of the capital of Northeast Ohio maple sugaring. I, you know, so, I've never gone out there, but Laura, I bet you have. Have you been out for to take your kids to watch the sap collection? Yes, we did it at the uh, Malabar Farms, like halfway between here and Columbus. It's like near Mansfield. 
uh, it's a cool farm and they actually have the old, the draft horses that will take you back in there. They, I think they do it one, a couple of weekends in late February or early March. And when those first days when they're sunny in the middle of the day and it, it's just like, you can feel spring. It is a really cool thing mm-hmm. to see. Has our gardening columnist, Susan Brownstein, written about whether people can do this at home? She has not written about that yet. She's writing about seed swapping this week, uh, which is another sign of spring, I guess. But I was going to ask, is is it Jersey pronunciation of syrup instead of syrup? or, or Syrup. Or, syrup. I say syrup. 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 Layla? I grew up saying syrup. <laughs> okay. But, not, I've, been, I, but I've tried to change. Divide. I've tried to change. So stop picking on my Jersey twang. <laughs> it's not really evident, except when we're talking about the liquid that we have in Lake Erie. What do you say? Wa- wa- water. Yeah, I don't know. Water. Let's move on. You are listening today in Ohio. The family of a Bowling Green State University student who died in a hazing incident announced a settlement this week that the family will put to good use. Laura, what was the announcement? This is a $2.9 million settlement between the university and the parents of Stone Foltz. And that includes a commitment from the university to partner with the family to end hazing. They're going to create a foundation with that money. And attorneys say it was the largest payout by a public university in a hazing case in Ohio history. This is a brutal case. This was March 2021. Stone was 20, a Bowling Green sophomore sophomore from Delaware, Ohio. He attended a Pi Kappa Alpha fraternity event off campus. And anyone pledging, which I'm sorry, is not actually a word that the Greek community uses anymore, but we all still do. Uh, They had to drink a handle of liquor. That's 41.5 ounce shot. That is an insane amount of alcohol. He was taken back to his house after the event. His roommates found him unconscious the following morning, and he passed away a couple days later after his organs were donated. So just horrendous. And they're talking about the money they're getting is not really for them that they they're devoted to ending this kind of thing yeah it's going to create the i am stone Foltz foundation to educate people and prevent hazing and the idea is that we 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 see a couple of these cases i feel like every year at some ohio university some some fraternity or sorority is being kicked off campus for hazing. This is Pike, uh, Pi Kappa Alpha at, at BG, and they are gone from campus completely. But you hear stories all the time. I was in a sorority when I went to Miami University. I have to say, the sororities did not haze. They just gave you gifts. Like every day, you got a different gift. There was absolutely no hazing. It was the fraternities we always heard about. And the universities were good about following up and punishing after the fact, but there wasn't a whole lot of education beforehand about hazing. And that's what this aims to do is to stop it before it starts rather than just punishing. But the the story is really just so sad and senseless. And I was telling my 12-year-old about it because I'm like, he's getting to the point where, you know, he's going to be hearing about alcohol and stuff. And he was just like, oh, my God. I was like, this is why peer pressure is really bad. Never let anyone make you do something like this. Well, it's heartbreaking because they said he was our only son Mm -hmm. and he's gone and you can never bring him back and you always have that void in your life. There are a few things that I think would be worse as a parent than getting that phone call. Uh, You know, you're getting your kid off to college, successful Mm -hmm. childhood and getting that call would 
be crushing. It's terrible. Yeah, and several people were criminally charged. Some people went to jail for six weeks. Three students were expelled, 18 others suspended. So there's a lot of punishment handed down in this, and there are still some pending lawsuits. But you're right. This will never bring Stone back. All they can hope is that it helps save someone else's life. If I were a parent, I'd be looking for a college that doesn't have fraternities. I'll tell you what. uh, Avoid it. Lisa and I both went to the College of Worcester, and they didn't. They didn't have any official Greek life, Mm -hmm. but they they came up with Greek life. They were in. I was going to say they had fake fraternities and sororities that were just as bad about hazing. Yes, they were. I don't know if you can stop it. Yeah, and I I think the 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 urban legend went was the reason we didn't have national frats at College of Worcester is because there was a hazing incident back in the 30s. I don't know if that was true, but yeah, but you're right. The oats would always get in a lot of trouble. Oats. And then they were kicked off campus and they still, then they became like the taboo fraternity that you wanted to go hang out with. I mean, it was like, it was nuts. Did, and did I, you go hang out with them? They had good parties. Oh, the Oats did. I'm sure I went to one of their parties. <laughs> it's just so bizarre that like, we want you to join our brotherhood. We're going to be friends for life. First, First we're going to torture you. Torture, exactly. Right. It is torture. I don't understand that. I, I was at the College of Worcester once when one of the hazing incidents was that they, they challenged one pledge to to uh, run toward this glass window and then try to stop him. I, I, I don't know, understand mm-hmm. what they were trying to tell him. He ran through the glass window and nearly died. Mm-hmm. It wow. was terrible. And we were, it's such a small campus that that just rocked it to its core. Mm-hmm. It was awful. I, I don't understand that either, Laura. Like, what? Uh, they should be all, all right. be banned. At least this settlement will go toward trying to reduce it. So credit to his family. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The verdict is in. Does Cleveland have the right to fire an employee who goes on social media to say he wishes he was the one who shot Tamir Rice? Layla, sometimes there does seem like there is sense in the labor situation in Cleveland. Yes. uh, The U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals found that the city's firing of EMS Captain Jamie Marquardt did not violate his First Amendment right to speech, upholding a district judge's ruling. This three-judge panel was unanimous. They ruled that the city of Cleveland had a duty to protect the public's trust in its EMS services' ability to protect the public. And, And that overrides the First Amendment argument here. The backstory here is that Mark Hart, who had been working for the city since 1991, made these posts in February of 2016. This was just after the controversy erupted over the fact that Cleveland had billed the Rice family for the EMS run that took Tamir to the hospital. And Mark Hart referred to Tamir Rice as a felony hood rat and said, I'm glad he's dead. And another post, he said, I wish I was in the park that day. As he terrorized innocent patrons by pointing a gun at them, walking around acting bad. And then in another post, he said, I'm upset I did not get the chance to kill the little criminal effer. So Mark Hart yeah. denied making these posts. He said a friend named Donnie used his phone to write them. Yeah, blame Donnie. I mean, Mark Hart later deleted the post and put up a new one saying, you know, I, that's you know, whatever. He disavowed it, but he wouldn't provide Donnie's last name during arbitration. So they couldn't question him. And the arbitrator was like, yeah, that's likely story. So he sued the city and claimed that his rights were violated and the city's social media policy was unconstitutional. And at first, the the, the U.S. District Judge Solomon Oliver agreed with Marquardt, but not that his rights had been violated. Uh, the Sixth Circuit overturned Oliver's decision, sent the case back, and then Oliver upheld the firing. Yeah, I, so many times Cleveland loses 
cases that seem just based on common sense, they should win. So you never knew with this case how it would end up. But if I were in Cleveland, I would not want this captain coming and taking care of me. So it's this is a good ending for this. This Uh, this reminded me of the the Cleveland Clinic doctor who posted anti-Semitic statements on social media and was fired. You can't you can't have someone who harbors hate like that, working in a position where they have people's lives in their hands. Because if a person needs life-saving care, they have a right to know that it won't be compromised by the racist feelings of the caregiver. Yeah, so good ending to this case. It's today in Ohio. Cleveland loves Guardians manager Terry Francona for his winning ways. Will the city also love him for his cooking, Lisa? We shall see. Terry Francona is an investor in Geraci's Slice Shop, which will be opening soon at 603 Prospect Avenue downtown in the former Vincenza space. It's going to open in April. But he visited the original University Heights location, and he made a Tito pie, which is shaped like home base, and it has pepperoni and mushrooms on it, which is my usual order at Geraci's. Um, You can get it as a complete pie or a giant slice. Um, This is been a really busy month for Tito. He was voted the most handsome manager in the American League earlier this month. And then his scooter, his beloved scooter, which is called the Hog or something, was stolen on Tuesday outside of his downtown apartment, but they recovered it yesterday just down the road a little bit. Yeah, he is a special kind of Clevelander, um, three times, right, manager of the year now. He's just a, a great guy. So I suspect this this pizza shop is going to do quite well, especially on nights when the Guardians are playing in Cleveland. Well, for some of us, I grew up with Geraci's, you know, for so for people like me, it's Geraci's and everybody else. So I'm glad to see that they're spreading their footprint into downtown. Yeah, what's amazed me is Geraci's Forever was just that little shop in University Mm -hmm. Heights. And then overnight, they had multiple locations and and started to grow. So good for them and good for Tito. We'll have to see how this place goes during the summer. It's today in Ohio. That's it for Thursday. Let's hope we don't get blasted by snow today. It's kind of up in the air what the lake effect's going to do. I meant to say earlier that the householder trial's been postponed because a juror has COVID, so we will not be talking about it probably again until next Tuesday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thank you for listening. We'll be back Friday wrapping up the week of news.